Truman's warning. No culture society that has had to justify itself by itself, that's a culture three, no from above revelation, has ever maintained itself for any length of time. Such always involves cultural entropy. It falls apart. A degeneration of the culture because, of course, there really is nothing worth communicating from one generation to the next. It's all about you and what you want. I got nothing to pass on to you. There's no tradition to pass on. The institution exists simply to protect you in your self-expression. There's nothing to pass on. And a, a, a culture cannot last with that. It will always crumble. Um, I don't remember the year. Uh, Robert Bork, some of you would know that name, but he wrote a book, best, one of the best titles on earth, Slouching Toward Gomorrah. Isn't that a great name? <laughs> great title. This is worth the, buying the book just for the title, I think. But Slouching Toward Gomorrah. But he wrote um, 30 years ago, and he laid out where America's headed, these cultural changes, pretty capably seeing where we were headed. And I, I hate to say this in one sense, but the Christians, we can hear it. He basically said there's no answer. We've gone so far down this trail, there is no getting it back. We've jumped off the cliff, and gravity has taken over. So we'll, we'll finish with that here tonight as we think about our response. But I think, depending on how you look at this, I, we, we don't want to be pessimistic and, and overly negative in our understanding, but this is not going to be recovered outside of a direct intervention of God. And that is possible, certainly, but it will take nothing less. Uh, we're, we're not going to be able to talk people out of this culturally as a society. That's just where we're headed. All right, on that happy note. We add now a new segment, and we're moving into new material here, and that's the historical architects of the modern view of self. I've categorized all that we've considered here to this point as macro concepts, that is, grand, large-scale developments of man's kingdom in the West. This backdrop is important to the understanding of our position in the world, but we come to where, uh, we come to this place one step at a time, and that's a thing that's both concerning and something we need to consider. But all along the way, there have arisen philosophers who serve as teachers or shepherds of man's kingdom. They teach how to think, what to value, and really, we look at it and recognize that what it is is how to cast off the authority of God. How do we cast off that authority? How do we become like gods, knowing good from evil? That is, determining what is right and what is wrong for ourselves apart from God. I'm going to take a very small sample size, but talk through some of the philosophers who have had specific involvement in this whole rethinking of, of how we view culture and how we look at our lives. There's some shared characteristics that they have. First of all, they were all radically third culture people. 
No revelation from above, God telling us what to do, no playbook. They were all radically third culture, radically practitioners of poiesis. The world is clay, we're going to mold it into whatever we want to. They were all forerunners of expressive individualism in their understanding of the self. And each one of them was seen as radical. That was the nice word. They thought people thought they were insane. Like, you're just absolutely crazy. The average person, as these individuals were developing their philosophies, you are crazy. But we might picture it like they had this big, huge box of pink dye. And they stood on the edge of the river and they threw the box in the river and everybody's going, what are you doing? You're turning the river pink. This is, what is wrong with you? But as that pink-colored water worked its way down the river to generations to follow, people said, well, what's wrong with a pink river? It's just what they saw. It's what they came to understand where they were in life. So some of the crazy things that these individuals taught, everybody thought was crazy. But what they're doing is they're teaching generations downstream. And that's one of the things that just... Yeah, I mean, it's chilling, but you see the hand of Satan. They supply the pieces, and generation connecting to generation, Satan puts it together, and people just keep buying the pink water. I have nothing against pink as such, but I don't wear it very often. But uh... These philosophers, uh, let me go... The, the, um, well, who were they? Uh, how did they teach? What did they say? How did they defy God? First, it'll be helpful for us to take an overview. So really narrow in here. You've got to grab this because this is the whole night right here <clears throat> as far as what's new. What developed was a sense of a psychologized self that then got worked into a sexualized psychology and finally a politicized sexuality, which we see everywhere in our world. All three of these things are now prominent in our culture. But this was a long-term project, a psychologized self. So by that I mean self-identity is radically shifted from external determiners as to who you are, to a hypersensitive, hyper-internalized sense of how we feel about ourselves. What the individual wants, who we believe we are as authentic individuals, what we determine makes us happy. That's the psychologized self. In the past, such people would probably be institutionalized. There's something really, really wrong with this person. But that is now the way that we think about the self as little gods determining what we want. Secondly, the sexualized psychology, that stage, self-determination is directly hitched to one's sexual desires. And then thirdly, that then gets protected by law. How have we gotten here? Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau was a renowned French philosopher, social revolutionary. His philosophical writings on politics, education, and morality have profoundly 
influence Western culture to this day. I say it a lot, I don't know, nobody can prove it, but I honestly think many Christian homes and how parenting is done, if John went to Christian homes, he'd be pretty happy. Christian families listen as much to Rousseau as they do to Jesus sometimes, I think, when it comes to how they parent and what they think is the best way to train the next generation. That's a personal uh, idea, but uh, he has had a profound influence upon our society in his teachings. We don't even know how to spell Rousseau, but we have picked up from the air, what it, it just pulsates. Our, our every, our, every aspect of our culture pulsates with his thinking. Rousseau despised Western culture's dependence on authoritarian social structures, institutions, and principles of behavior. The conservative idea that we are taught who we are to be, that we receive our identity from a higher authority and horror of all horrors, that we get our wisdom from God, all of this nauseated Rousseau. Man is free, but everywhere is in chains, he lamented, and he knew how to cut the chains. He was fully culture three poiesis, the poster child of it all. He proposed that a healthy society must cast off all authoritarian standards of virtue enforced by existing social structures. These approved, vetted virtues were to be replaced with an appeal to what comes natural to the individual, to what a person wants, what a person finds delight in. That's what should take place. So what was Rousseau specifically targeting in his attack on authoritarian standards that are pressed on society. He's attacking scripture, he's attacking the church, government, class structures, parental training, teachers, and any other hierarchical structure that informs social or moral instruction. Rousseau, at least in theory, argued for a more egalitarian society, and on some of this we would find agreement. Since ancient times, philosophers had taught that virtues are the result of nurture informed by nature. This gave privileged children a distinct advantage in society. Their working parents, and we're going back to a time where working was 12, 14, 16 hour days, very difficult, hard work. By working, they were unable to spend the time with their children to teach such rudiments of behavior. And so, these children did not learn. Rousseau saw this and said, this is unfair. The wealthy have the ability to teach their children and therefore always maintain their place in society, always making sure there's there's lots of lower-level people to do the hard work. I think we would all agree with him on some level, that there are some things in that that are not good. However, he tethered everything to the belief that the human heart is entirely pure and that all people should feel equally good about themselves and morality must then be placed equally within everyone's reach. 
So you see his egalitarian desire, the goodness of that, which we would say maybe that should have led to the education of the poor. But he goes off into a radical direction with that and says what we've got to do then in order to make everything equal is everyone appeals not to authorities outside of themselves, but to their own heart. And if you're worried about it, the heart is pure. Every heart is pure. This was the democratization of virtue. Morality not received from above, not, but a morality from below. Negatively then, virtues must not be determined by authoritarian decree or traditional norms. Positively, virtues must be determined by the desires and emotions of the individual who, felt, who should feel entirely free to do whatever his heart or her heart said to do. So virtue now became the domain of the masses. Does it make sense? It's not just the few who can pay for the education, just the few who hear from the church, but the masses who just listen to their own heart. Now we're all equal. No one should tell anyone what to believe or how to act. You must find the source of moral behavior and restrictions in what naturally flows from your unrestricted desires. I think Rousseau turns over in his grave that he did not coin the phrase, you be you. I mean, that, that he, it's what he was saying. For Rousseau, sin was not sourced and then in the human heart, so then we ask, well, where was it sourced? He clearly knows culture's messed up. So where does that come from? If it doesn't come from the human heart, where does sin or wrong come from? Answer, the institutions. It's the institutions that put pressure on people to act a certain way. <laughs> I mean, you see the irrationality of this. It's like, who runs institutions? Uh, it sort of happens to be people, you know, with hearts. Uh, but but that, he, didn't go, he didn't allow himself to go there and to face that irrationality in his argumentation. But it's always the institution that is at fault. So the highest priority is for man to be free to be himself apart from the corrupting influences of societal expectations. In all of this then, my inner being is the space where I will discover how to live my life and how to attain happiness. Under this rubric, we have come to this conviction in Western self-identity philosophy. The one who is truly free is the one who is free to be himself. The one who is shaped by society and not by his own conscience and reason is truly a slave. I am free when I decide for myself what concerns me rather than being shaped by external influences. That was Rousseau's triumph. And that thinking, we can say, that, it, does that sound disconnected from your world? It sounds like, yeah, that's how a lot of people think, isn't it? He laid this all out, and we drank the Kool-Aid. Well, this leads to three poets, William Blake, William Wordsworth, and Piercy Shelley. These three poets uh, took up Rousseau's views, and they popularized them in their poetry. Now, the 1700s, 1800s, the poets of that era were kind of like we would look at uh, musicians, um, rappers, that type of thing, that kind of on steroids. I mean, uh, people sat around and read poetry. 
That's, that's, they just did that. Uh, and, and in that poetry, they heard, as we do with music today, they heard these philosophies and pressed these philosophies through their poetry. So these poets shocked people and troubled the status quo, as do the lyrics of many musicians and artists of our day. They popularized the notion that to be an authentic human being means to live life unashamed of one's desires and to freely pursue the fulfillment, allowing no one to get in the way of those desires. So the writings of the poets expressed nature at nature essentially in that in their thinking almost replaced the holy spirit it had a force to it an instructive force nature did and they meant by nature they meant your human nature and the world outside like you you get into nature you you feel it you smell it you sense it and it guides you into truth So the perceived authority of what seemed natural to mankind and even the joy one can find in nature displaced the authority of Scripture and even the presence of the Holy Spirit. And who were the chief priests of the new religion? The poets. They are the ones who spoke with apostolic authority as to what to believe. Their central message was be true to your feelings and the impulses of nature. This is the only path to authenticity. Liberate yourself from any voice of authority that hinders your pursuit of your natural desires. Whether that's Christianity, whether that's the institution of marriage. They very directly attack the institution of marriage. And had a significant influence. I guess I had that on there. I would not want to meet that guy in the dark. I mean, that... (laughs) Does that not look scary? Uh, sorry, G.W.F. Hegel, but uh, at any rate, this is a German philosopher. Key contribution to philosophical belief was that human nature was fitted with no intrinsic moral compass. Our sense of right and wrong is purely a product of historical evolution. So human progress is made this way. Somebody sets up a belief that's called the thesis. Somebody else comes along and says, eh, I don't think that's quite right. That's the antithesis. Where does that lead? To a synthesis. You've heard this. Some of you went to school somewhere. <laughs> right? So the thesis, the antithesis, the synthesis. The synthesis is always better. Because everything is human evolution. So that synthesis then presents a thesis. Somebody comes along with the antithesis and we have a new synthesis which just keeps progressing, keeps moving forward. So humanity is testing these ideas one after another. Hegel's influence was uh, located to a significant degree in being picked up by Karl Marx who embraced his theories and ran with them. With no idea who Hegel is, the average American holds this basic view of history and thus expects society to evolve into better and better forms. The broader culture simply assumes that present generations will always improve past generations. 
Now, every teenager in the history of humanity thinks that, <laughs> that I've improved my parents' position. We, I thought that as a teen, and now I realize that wasn't true. But, but, that, but he, he's saying this in adulthood. We will always arrive at something better. This is why it's so hard. This, this, I hope is helpful. Why is it so hard for some people in our day to see that mutilating the body of a child in order to support what he or she feels like inside cannot possibly be harmful or unwise? How can they not? How do they think that? That gender reassignment surgeries are okay. That they're not harmful. It's synthesis. We can't be wrong. We've arrived at this place over many generations of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. We have to be right. Because whatever's further down the road in evolution is always better than what came before. Hegel. Karl Marx picked up his thinking as did Friedrich Nietzsche. They labored along different lines to eliminate nature as a fixed power outside of us that exerts governing influence over our behavior. So get rid of God, get rid of Scripture, but nature is that which guides us into the right. Now Marx and Nietzsche come in and say, nope, no nature either. We're not going to appeal to nature. They insisted that we have the power and the right to invent ourselves with no involvement from nature and to achieve happiness by means of self-determination. So our task is to be who we want to be, to be true to ourselves, to follow what works best for us. God and nature can just shove off. We don't need any of that. For Marx, especially, history was a story of oppression and in every instance, the victims were the heroes. For Nietzsche, traditional institutions that sought to regulate morality, such as the family, the church, were an affront to happiness because they denied people the freedom to do what they wanted. So for Nietzsche imagined the, and lionized his so, so-called superman, Ubermensch, that followed standards and values of morality determined by himself and defended by himself this self-assertion and power that both perfected and even transcended the self. So he seems to have perceived to some degree that by killing God, so to speak, mankind had just removed the very foundations on which metaphysics and morality are based. That is, how do we find truth? What's right and wrong? He wanted God out of the equation. But he seems to have actually perceived on some level by doing that, we just destroyed the foundations of everything. And that led to such a depression that he took his life. He went insane seeking to answer these questions of how do we see life without God. And of course, with him, Charles Darwin providing the biological understanding of how God was not there, that we owe him nothing, uh, his cosmology eliminated a creator God, asserting that human beings have evolved from lower life forms, and this meant that neither God nor nature had any purpose or place in determining human behavior. 
By natural selection, we survive by adapting, but we need not worry about relating to God in the process, for God is not our creator and thus not our architect and not our arbiter. And again, people dismissed him, but downstream bought it. Now, a major development that's collecting with all of this movement is Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis. This is where the sexual orientation enters into the stream. Freud lauded Rousseau's idea that morality must be determined by introspection, by the desires that flow naturally from the heart. Well, for Freud, that natural desire flowing from the heart was always, at its very core, absolutely sexual. He taught that our identity and the greatest freedom that we can find is to be found in the pursuit of sexual pleasure, and this was true even of little children in ways that they do not detect, which, but what are very much forming them as they develop. So every human being is a sexual human being, and this is more or less all there is to it. Therefore, the happiest person is the one who can live out his sexual fantasies. That's gospel truth to Freud. Connected to it is the fact, said Freud, you can't do it. So it was a very negative philosophy. He's saying the very core of your being, the very desire of your heart is to act out whatever sexual fantasy you have, but you can't can't pull it off. Because if we did that, we would absolutely fall apart. A wonderful theory, isn't it? How dark and discouraging. But it was a very dark philosophy. And the ultimate freedom of unrestrained sexual expression was nothing more than absolute frustration for everyone. But this then led to him making a whole bunch of money through psychoanalysis of trying to figure out what's wrong with everybody. And everything was some dark, weird, sexual frustration along the way. I think he's probably just a thoroughly corrupt man that, again, got a lot of people to drink the Kool-Aid. But that, it's over now. From that point on, the internalized self is connected to sexual desire. There are many that push this forward. Wilhelm Reich, Herbert Marcuse, uh, they both press forward uh, sex and in, in, in the, the politicization of sexuality. So the philosophy these men invented melded free sex with Marxism. They insi- now you say Marxism. How does Marxism get into that? They insisted that sexual codes are nothing more than instruments of oppression wielded by people who hold power over others. So the very idea of marriage, for instance, is just a way for men to identify which woman's theirs. It's possession. It's control. That's all that it is. I mean, again, all of this just throwing out what the Creator says. I mean, it doesn't even factor in now at this point. But they also promoted the politicization of sexual ethics. If evil people were oppressing sexual desire, thus blocking people's only path to happiness and self-understanding and self-actualization, then the government should put restraints on those people. If you'd like, if you want to chase this, uh, I would suggest The New Politics of Sex by Baskerville. 
You want to look at how sex is politicized in our society, this would be a very good take on it. Now, I would say I think he's a little too strident in some places, a little too unyielding in his animosity toward the system, but he will wake you up to all kinds of things in which uh, sex is politicized in our setting, in our culture. Now, their work also contributed significantly then to the view that sex is identity. Uh, these guys. He needed a comb, man. I, I don't know what's <laughs> going on there, but that, that's something. Um, I can make fun of these guys because I don't like them. No, it's, I'm <laughs> just, just kidding, just kidding. Uh, um, So next, and we're getting close, just press on a little further, Alfred Kinsey and John Money, and perhaps heard these names, they live a little closer to our time, but they, their life's work aimed at revolutionizing the way people think about sex or taking everything that's come down the stream to them and been handed to them, and now they want to just take this forward. From our perspective, and indeed from theirs, their work flowed in direct opposition to any biblical notion of sexuality. They were following Freud's lead to say sexuality is everything, and freedom is everything, and anybody who says anything else is just trying to oppress you, and they really popularized uh, this, this thinking. So their work contributed significantly to sex as our very identity. Let me take you on a journey. We're going to get in a time capsule. I don't know what that is, Ben, but <laughs> we're trying to fix that. Sorry. Um, let's go in a time capsule to 1823. We're in 2023. We're going to go back 200 years. Starting in his early teens, we meet a man who begins to entertain sexual desires for other men. For a multiplicity of reasons, he never acts on those desires. He remains celibate for life, and he dies a single man. Over the course of his entire adult life, he secretly struggles with strong homosexual urges, never really finding more than a passing interest sexually in a woman. Is this man a homosexual? In 1823, our society would say categorically no. Absolutely not. If that's, if you're just going, huh? That's because we're in 2023. His identity, the people in 1823 would say, is largely supplied by the community, its rules, its ways, its expectations, and how he related to that community as a single man. A single man, let's say he was a lawyer, he was a good poker player, a philanthropist. Yes, all these. But by no means in anyone's mind is he a homosexual. Because, what? He never acted upon those desires. His identity is linked to family, to maybe a church community. His identity was that of a responsible single man in the community. That's who he was. And he couldn't be anything else. But we come to 2023, and I don't need to tell you, the answer would be absolutely yes. Of course he's a homosexual. 
He's dealt with these desires all of his life. That's who he is. The man's identity is determined by those inner desires, most significantly by his sexual desires. His community, the pressures of the society in which he lived, forced him to deny who he was or at least hide who he was. But his deepest desires spoke for who he really was. That was his true identity. You see the change. You see the reorientation to how we look at the self and thus how we identify the self. So in this brief survey, this this historical survey, it is clear that man has labored for centuries to advocate for self-identity by means of self-determination, by cutting the chains of any authority whatsoever in our world. We come to these three segments. Psychologized self. Life fundamentally about what I want to be, who I see myself to be, my pursuit of happiness, what I believe is best for me, that life is not worth living unless I am true to myself as I define it. That's who I am. Sexualized psychology. I'm fundamentally a sexual being, so what I want sexually is who I am even though there is in this orientation the fundamental problem of my desires um, running into the desires of others. And the politicized sexuality, who I am, my path to happiness, my pursuit of my truth must be respected, it must be protected and even celebrated or you are wronging me and standing in the way of my happiness. Government must punish the evil person who does not get with the program. This is where this whole historical line has taken us. And this world is not going away. Sex is identity, sex is politics, LBGTQ thing with self at the center is the culture in which Christ has placed us to shine for him. This is our world. Now with this, just a quick trail, and that's the role that technology plays in this strange new world. Technology is the grease that lubricates the ascendant view of self in our time. Uh, in a different article, not from the book, but Truman presents three ways that technology does this. First of all, technology lets us live in our own little bubble. It severs our need of of community. He gives us an example. It's a perfect example, and that's music. You think, go back to that 1823 time, and how do you listen to music? Somebody has to hand copy Every sheet of music for an orchestra, let's say it's a symphony, which would have been very common at that time, hand copy every note to pass out to all the instruments with a maestro that leads many, many practices to the night of this concert. You come together and you listen and take that in, and what a gift. And you go back and just... Can't wait till the next time, whenever that is next year or two years or wherever it is down the road, or there's this artist and this artist, but that's how you listen to music. It's very much a communal event. Not today, is it? 
We so individualize picking whatever music we like, when we like it, where we want it, sitting down by ourselves in front of a screen and choosing from all over the world and all over time whatever music I like. Technology very much feeds into it. I'm not saying any of that's wrong. It just lets us know how individualized and how self-oriented we are. And technology has done that. I run my own world. I've lived for five months with a three-year-old in our, at our table, and she learned to control Google or Alexa and tell them what to sing. You know, it's just, I mean, she's three years old. She can demand any song she wants that she knows right off, just talk. She doesn't even know how it works. It just talk, and it's there. It's, it's, what a world. Technology, secondly, fuels the sense that we can shape our world into whatever we want it to be. The internet teases me into thinking I'm omnipresent. I can overcome time and space, connecting around the world, shopping around the world, banking from the comfort of my living room, and all of this at warp speed. The internet teases me into thinking I'm omniscient because I can find someone who will confirm what I want to believe on anything. It teases me into believing that I am my own creator because I can manage my identity online. I can choose the pictures that go on. I can choose the words that are stated. I can present myself as I want to present myself. How different is that from living in a small town in 1738? Everybody knew you by looking at you and listening to you and seeing what you did. There's no management of your image online. Thirdly, technology seems to erase many of the consequences of sin. In the past, sexual promiscuity was a sure path to pregnancy and disease. The stakes were immensely high, and people understood that. No longer. Contraceptives, medications, abortion provide technological end runs around the consequences of promiscuity. Watching a basketball game here, this, this commercial just came on the, the other day, uh, and it, it's, it, I, I, said, I commented to Beth, it, said, it was about AIDS and some medication for, for AIDS and you know, showing these homosexual couples. And, and I thought, wow, the, our world's really changed because they, they just cleaned up blood from a player off the floor. And you remember that kind of at that first start of AIDS, it was like, wow, I mean, the guys are going to die on the court you know, if, they, if, they, if their blood gets... And, it's just no big deal now. You just get medication. Just take care of it. I mean, it was a death sentence. But, but technology works around that. In the past, nature said no to sexual promiscuity, but technology has overcome that. So technology deceives people into thinking that nature has no control over us, and thus we are free to make ourselves into whatever we want. Just some quick thoughts. I'm not going to be able to get into this as I'd like, but we must position ourselves then as we think in response as a church to pass on truth to the next generation in a winsome but non-apologetic manner. In the preaching and teaching of the church, in our families, um, may we learn to, I don't know what that meant, but emphasize the external authoritative word from above, which we are privileged to receive, believe, obey, and defend. That's a commitment we certainly need to make. To emphasize truth as a sacred trust originating from outside of us. Forget about the second culture thing as such. 
but to say there, there is a God in heaven who reveals his word. He gives it to us as a sacred trust, and it is our privilege and our life to honor that word. To emphasize the moral laws of Scripture, the responsibilities that we have to align our lives with Christ. Scripture is not a body of good suggestions or tips on wise living. True doctrine is our life, and it is received. So may we consistently point upward, not inward, to find guidance and wisdom. Secondly, to emphasize a believer's union with Christ. I think we really need to continue to come back to this principle. In a self-oriented world, to continue to meditate upon and think about the implications of I am united with the death and resurrection of Christ. That's my identity. And to keep probing into that and to the, to, to the, uh, where it takes us in our understanding spiritually. To proclaim, defend, and adorn biblical sexual ethics. We must commit ourselves as families and as a church to do this. To not be ashamed of what Christ has indicated, what Scripture teaches, but rather to honor it, to run with it, to emphasize it. To promote a biblical view of the body, especially to teens. That God created us good. We are broken, we are fallen, but He created us good. There is nothing wrong with the physical body. And the body that the Lord has given us is something beautiful to be received and thankful for. Well, it doesn't always look beautiful, but you know what I mean. It's, it's falling apart. Mine is anyway. But... Uh, we, we receive it with thanksgiving. What people seeped in our culture need is a radical alternative, a lifeline of hope in a sex-saturated, sex-crazed world. Promote, we, we need to promote a biblical view of the body, uh, pro, to proclaim a um, big, glorious God and His great promises. We are not going to orient ourselves to apologize for the word that God has revealed to us, but to say that he is great and he is greatly to be praised. And the more we come to know him, the more we come to love him, and the more glory that we see. Our current culture is so saturated with the tiny self. It's unsatisfying. The key opportunity is for us uh, th- that we hear as a church a message that the, the, our world hears nowhere else. That there's something far grander than you. And you can tie into that union with Christ and that greatness. There's an exhaustion that comes from trusting in yourself, in your intuitions, in your feelings. Can you imagine being handed the wheel of yourself and say, steer this wherever you want it to go with no guidance or direction? That's where our world's at. And it it is exhausting. But we have the promises of God. People oriented to self know they they, they cannot deliver anything like that Uh, what God promises to us in Christ. They have no such um, possibility. Secondly, we must grasp the evangelistic, apologetical opportunity that is intrinsic in our obedience to Christ in a self-oriented world of death works. Just thinking of a few things. Truth from above, not from within. We've hit that. But identity in Christ, not in self. 
There's a beauty to this that our world needs to see. Uh, Family warmth and stability. In the death works of our society, family continues to be broken down, and sin just destroys families. To promote family, to see it in 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 the best light, is something that's going to be really important for us as we carry forward. We have the counsel of God on how to live in a family. And yes, sin gets in the way and mucks it up and causes trouble, but there's a beauty to the stability and the enduring love of family that so many in our world are, are, not, are not experiencing. And when it comes to those who are, are unmarried in their singleness, there is a, a, a family, there are family connections that they have, and then there's the family connection to the church itself. And there's such beauty in this. I was just talking to somebody here today, um, a couple guys. Um, I, I can't, in, in, the, in the articles that I write in the Savage Pacer, I can't really like go after transgender and just say, this breaks the law of God, it's wrong, it's horrible. I I can't do that. But I write with some regularity articles about the beauty of family. And all I'm saying is, this is just what happened to me. Nobody can argue with it. It's just what happened. But I want people to see in this culture, there's a beauty to male-female. There's a beauty to husband-wife, to parent-child. God has done that. And there's something very beautiful there. I just want to put it on a pedestal and say, look at that. See that. How can we do that? What are ways in which we can do that? The community life that we have as a church, do we recognize how many people walking around in this world have no community? They might be able to find one on occasion at a bar. It's a great place to develop community. I mean, everybody's thinking real clearly. I mean, it... It's, and, and it doesn't last. They, they're there for the evening and they leave. We have a community that runs so much deeper and there are people that are going to be walking in our doors that have no clue of what that is. May we draw them in in the right way. The modern view of self and technologies are disoriented. They make us small and isolated. Providing authentic community is something the world is seeing less and less of. Families are breaking down. The isolation of technology leads so many people to be so very lonely. And loneliness is something we deal with in a church as well. It's not like that goes away and is not a problem. You can be lonely in a crowd. But think of the connections, the love, the confidence, the cooperation and partnership that we can have as a church. When we're out on this property on a work day you would realize this world so many people have utterly no experience like that ever 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 and that's one of the wonders of being on the highway just just get out there and work together there's a community there that so many people do not have i mentioned this at our uh, teen focus fellowship meeting here we had testimonies from Al and Sue Downs with our teens there. They're talking about suffering and death and the goodness of God in a very difficult... I'm like, teens, you realize there are not teens anywhere that get this. 
Like they, they, they don't have this experience of an older person talking to them about death and how to trust God through it. Uh, we have so many opportunities. And then just the fallout of sinful choices and the, and the pain and the heartache that this world is experiencing because of walking away from the truths of God. We have a lot of pieces to pick up with people. Um, a I guess we call transgender man came to our church some time ago and he talked to me afterwards uh, he being presented now as a she and clearly surgery having taken place and he's just said I, I can't go back I can't become what I was uh, I, I'm, I'm told that I need to change but I can't change and I, and I just said I I didn't know what to say, but I just said, you know, we all need to change. And only God can do that. Um, we didn't have opportunity to continue ministering there, but isn't that the case? What is the transgender underlying desire? I think it's a twisted view of saying, I need to be different than I am. It's a twisted view that says, I'm not good as I am. I'll be happier if I change. What an opportunity for us to meet a world in that spot and say, there is a change that God makes possible. And every change that you truly desire as a human being, He's the source of that change. And it's stuff you don't even know. So let's talk. How many opportunities will be ours in the days ahead as we shine light for Christ? But we need to shine, and, and, it, and our society has certainly gotten a lot darker. By His grace, we can then shine more brightly. Let's stand together. We'll be um, dismissed in prayer. Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity to talk through these matters and just to stop and give thanks again that we are looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We're looking to the Christ who despised the shame that we talked about this morning and who is now seated at your right hand interceding for us. Lord, our identity is in him and in the work that he has done and continues to do and in his coming again. That's where our identity is found and this is nothing but grace. I pray that you allow us to shine as light in this world, that the community of this church, that the stability of families, that the connectedness of our single adults and our children, Lord, in all of this, that we would be able to present to this world the transforming power of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't understand everything, and understanding how the world's gotten to where it is doesn't ultimately help us. But I pray, Father, that just understanding how lost and confused and how genuinely rebellious this world is against your ways, may we rejoice to know that you have found us, that you have given us light, that you have given us life in the Son. And Lord, together we long to open up our mouths to display in our lives the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we do so faithfully. Open doors of opportunity, we pray this week for us. And may your name be praised. Thank you for your goodness to us in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you.